0: All right, we're in the book of Philippians, chapter three. It's been a few weeks since we've been together. We saw the movie a couple weeks ago, and then somebody was sick last week, so we missed it. So, uh, um, Philippians chapter three. We'll continue our study through through this book. We're going to look at verses uh, uh, one through three. Kind of interesting that uh, even the sermon title, which I did a couple of weeks ago, because I was going to preach this last week, but. Uh, really ties in with the thought of the we think about the missionaries and sometimes we forget that many of them are in some very difficult places. And we talk about the ones that, that were shot uh, this week in Iraq and, and uh, the impact of that well we know the impact, it can have a huge impact for the kingdom but but the other side of that is the impact for their families and we're going to remember them always and then their churches each of, each of those people came from a a church and, and they gather today to worship and, and remember so Paul is once again going to talk about we who are the followers of Jesus having the right priorities. And having, our, having things as, they, as they're supposed to be in our lives. And having Christ in the proper place in our life. Once again, he's going to talk about, you know, I've shared this before. John had his major issue. Now, they, they talked about everything, but John had his major issue, the Apostle John. And John's major issue was, was Gnosticism in the church, which basically taught salvation is simply a matter of enlightenment and, and a special knowledge, and when you get that, then, then you can be saved. Paul, his main thing that he dealt with in church was a matter of legalism, was a matter of uh, people trusting in religion and religious practice. Uh, in that day, he would call, it, uh, he would call them the Judaizers, these people would follow him around. We were talking about that in Cal's Sunday School class this morning. It seemed like there was a group of Pharisees that just kind of followed Jesus around wherever he went, like they, like they were on assignment. Okay, see, if you can catch him this week, maybe you'll get an extra little you know, something in your, in your stocking or something like that. Well, Paul, well, John had his, and they were the Gnostics for the most part, and Paul had his, and they were the Judaizers, which basically were following him around saying, you know what? Paul is teaching a false gospel. He's wrong. He needs to be teaching the truth. And the truth is, if you're going to be right with God, Jesus is okay. And I, they wouldn't use it that way, of course. they say, you need to believe in Jesus. But you also need to keep the, the Jewish laws and the Jewish rituals and the Jewish ceremonies, including including all the uh, practices that the, that the Jews did in the Old Testament, including circumcision. Uh, Paul got angry at one point with with a circumcision, and he called it mutilation. Uh, and uh, of course, as a Jew, that would been that would have been a, that would have been a, that would have been a uh, well hyperbole to say the least. Uh, but he considered it to be mutilation if it was done, and someone believed by it being done somehow you made right with God by such a thing. I remind you that even the Old Testament, it was not the sacrifice of the animal that made people right with God. It was the obedience to God. Part of that obedience certainly was to sacrifice uh, the best that you had to him. But remember, Saul sacrificed the animal, and he wasn't right with God. So it's not, it's not just a matter about shedding blood. It's the heart. It's the, the motive. So Paul's going to deal with this to the church at Philippi, and he's going to talk to them again about these things, call them back to the place where they understand it is all about Christ. Jesus is what our faith is all about, folks. He is what it's all about. And everything else that you read in this wonderful book points us to him. It never points us away from him. It points us to him. And hopefully reminds us that in Christ we have an all-sufficient Savior. So that's not only sufficient to save us, but sufficient to keep us saved and to, to empower us as we're saved. All the things that we need, all the things that we need from God, we have in Christ Jesus. That's God's plan. Now, if we believe that you are made perfect in Christ, if you believe that Christ is the all-sufficient Savior, let me ask you, what else do you need? And yet, we we kind of pick on the, the Jews in this in this, Instant because that's what he's talking about. But there are many expressions of religion today that add their own stuff there too. You got to do this, you got to do that. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is in there somewhere. In some places, he's more prominent than others. But it's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. Uh, how many of you ever maybe been a part of a church or, or uh, been taught that uh, in order to be made right with God, it's Jesus plus? water baptism. How I many have ever heard that at least? Okay, and there are those who teach that, that unless you are water baptized then you can't know uh, salvation. There's no difference in requiring people to be water baptized from a New Testament perspective in being right with God as there is in requiring people to be circumcised in the Old Testament. Both of them speak of, of, of the mark of the covenant or the, the, the outward evidence of the covenant. okay. We do not baptize lost people, not biblically. We baptize saved people. Baptism is not the doorway into eternal life, and it's not even the doorway into the church. And I know some of you Baptists have been taught that, because I was in seminary. But I believe they're in error. Baptism is not the doorway into either one of those things. Baptism is a matter of a personal obedience to, to Christ because he, he, he told us to do that. It is a testimony of our faith. It's a wonderful picture of what Christ has done for us. But it is not, Christ is a doorway into to the church, and Christ is a doorway into eternal life. And we need to understand it. Everything we need is in Jesus Christ. Okay? I always ask people that say that you have to be baptized to be saved, what about the thief on the cross? And, and, of course, their response is always, he had special dispensation from Jesus. That's basically what their response is, you know. So, uh, all right, let's look at what Paul says here in the third chapter. We're going to read verses one through eleven. He says, "Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe." In other words, he wants to keep repeating. He wants him. He, he wants to make. It, he wants them to hear it over and over again. It's important. Okay, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul speaks again about the essence of of our faith. He begins this portion of his letter here with a warning. Look at what the warning is in verse 2. Beware of dogs. Now you do know that he's not talking about those four-legged creatures that run around most of our houses and stuff. Although, well, anyway, that won't say. Some of them need to be aware of. But the dogs that he's talking about here. He goes on to say, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of mutilation. He's specifically here and continually talking about again the Judaizers who come in to, come into church and for the most part dogs in his day were not like dogs in our day for the most part to call someone a dog was you know we think of dogs are cute and sweet and all that kind of stuff they're domesticated i'm not saying they didn't have domesticated dogs in this time but for the most part in this time the dogs ran around in packs they were unclean uh, to certain religions today, they remain unclean. To, to Islam, dogs are unclean. They don't want dogs around them and stuff. Okay? So, to call someone a dog, from a Jew, again, from a Jewish perspective, is a huge thing. That's what they called Gentiles. The Gentile dogs. You remember maybe in, in, in one time in Jesus' uh, walk and stuff that, that this lady who was a Gentile asked Jesus for... for to take to, to to give her what he was giving to others, and and Jesus says he says don't give the food that belongs to the children to the dogs. And this wonderful lady she responds by like, what remember what she said she said, dogs get, dogs get the crumbs. That That's right, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off of the table and stuff. What a what an expression of faith on her part. Okay, it was not a compliment to call people dogs, uh, and and. Matter of fact, it, it is one of the it's one of the huge insults of that day. Okay, goes on to be thee. What do dogs do in that day? Dogs ran around in packs, like we would consider maybe. How I many hear the coyotes at night and stuff? And you could tell when the packs are together and when they're when they're doing what they're doing and stuff. But, uh, I remember Gwen Davis got kind of cornered by a whole group of one one night. They were going after a little puppy and stuff. Mm-hmm. They could be scary uh that's that's more like what he's talking about so what do the dogs do they go around in packs to do what to to tear to to rend to to destroy and so he is actually calling these judaizers who had found their way into the church those who are coming in to destroy the book of proverbs says there are six things wait a minute there and he goes wait a minute there's seven things that god hates it's interesting in that long list that he puts there Here's another thing. Here's one of the things he said. Those who sow discord among the brethren. Those who come in for the purpose of tearing things up. Of destroying things. So when he talks about the dogs, he's talking about that, that mentality to come in. Now these guys, again, were guys who followed Paul around. You see him almost everywhere he goes. They're following Paul around. And after he leaves, or even sometimes when he's there, they go right into the, to the new church a new fellowship and stuff, and try to correct what they consider to be Paul's false doctrine. And they think they're doing the work of God, but actually what they're doing is, is they're, they're causing dissension and they're, they're tearing the fellowship apart. Because, I remind you, the fellowship of the church is based on a proper relationship and understanding of Jesus Christ. And when that is removed or it's replaced with something else, I guarantee you're going to have conflict. You see, we don't have biblical fellowship with those who do not believe biblically uh, 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 and properly about Jesus Christ. That really is a dividing thing for us. You, you, You know what I'm saying? Those who deny who Jesus is... We have no biblical fellowship with him. He is the basis of our fellowship with other people. That doesn't mean we don't have him as acquaintances. That do not mean we're not reaching out to him. That doesn't even mean we don't love him. But now we're talking about biblical fellowship. That oneness that we have is based in what we have together in Christ Jesus. So if you deny who Christ is or you deny what Christ has done, there is no basis for biblical fellowship. Okay? Ecumenicism is an attempt to create unity where there cannot be unity because there are some things that are important enough to divide over. There are some things that we can't just say, well, it doesn't matter just as long as we're all feeling the same way, okay? So he warns about those who would come into the church, the dogs that would come into the church, and to do this. It is Paul, throughout his whole ministry, that never seems to have a problem identifying people who are intentionally trying to destroy the church. He didn't have any problem identifying the false teachers, he didn't have a problem identifying the false prophets. He doesn't have any problem identifying these Judaizers that have come into the church and all these things. There, there is a need for that. Uh, one of the ministries that we talk about that, that defends our faith today, the term is apologetics. Those who write things that make sure that, that people do not carry the church away in the wrong, in the wrong direction. And I always tell people, you know what, when you are sit and listen to somebody and they say, you know what, I'm going to teach you something that nobody's ever taught about this verse. And your little intent ought to go right on up. You know, if, if they've discovered something that nobody's discovered in 2,000 plus years, you might not want to experience their discovery. Okay? Um, so, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Not only did he call them dogs, but he said, the intent of these people is evil. Now, I don't know where you stand on some things, but it's always been kind of taught that that the Judaizers were those. I'm talking about in the church now. Were those who trusted in Jesus but also taught these other things? So now we have the question: Are they saved? So to me, that's an interesting question, I, and I'm not I'm not sure I can fully answer that. But what we can know that if they bring in these destructive doctrines, as Paul calls them elsewhere, that he actually identifies them as workers of evil. So, next question, can a Christian be a worker of evil? I'm talking about generally born again Christian. Can they do can they be a worker of evil? Now, you can think about that one for a while. You think they can. <laughs> okay? So particularly these people, Paul is saying they they are not just mistaken, but they are workers of evil, which to me speaks that they have intent. They have intent to destroy the gospel that Paul has proclaimed, which is hugely bothersome to me in the sense of, um, well, there's just, an, and some people will say this, well, there's just another facet of the Christian religion and, or Christian faith, and I'm not quite sure that's true. Especially if you're denying the if you're intentionally denying what the Bible teaches about Jesus, I don't know how you can be just another facet of the of the Christian faith. But you guys are gonna to have to think of that one on your own. But because he calls them, he calls them workers uh, or evil workers. And then he says, Beware of the mutilation. Now, alone, certainly we Christians, we modern day Christians wouldn't understand that whole term mutilation. Except in the next verse, he tells us what it is. Look what he says there. He says, he says bless you. He says, he says, for we are the circumcision. So when he says, beware the mutilation, you, the next verse or the next line tells you what he's talking, about. he's talking about. He's talking about the circumcision. But he's not talking about just merely the act of circumcision. He again, once again is going back to that, that, that even bad, this is, this is, listen, this is even bad teaching in the Old Testament. That's what I want you to get. Teaching people that they are automatically made right with God because they have their foreskin removed is not even Old Testament biblical theology. It's just just not. And it was never intended to be the thing that made a man right with God. But it was always intended to be an evidence in the same way that baptism is an evidence. That you are a part of the covenant of God. So to teach people wrongly about either baptism in the New Testament covenant or circumcision in the Old Testament covenant is 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 to is to to miss the point about it. So he goes on to talk about he says he says in verse three that we are the circumcision, which again and elsewhere he says we're the circumcision that is done without hands. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the followers of God will receive a seal or a mark upon them. It also talks about those who are followers of Antichrist will receive a seal or a mark upon them. Okay, who puts the seal on the believers? I don't have any idea what it is. So, who puts the seal on the believers? Of course, the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, who puts the seal on those? Who are following the antichrist? The antichrist, the evil one. Okay. The true circumcision is what God does to the heart, not what man does to the physical body. The true baptism. Let's carry this on. The true baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not baptism by by not ritual baptism by immersion in water. Okay. Now, keep that in mind because it is also true that circumcision is an act where men use their hands. There's no way to get around that, okay? And baptism is also an act where we immerse people in water, okay? But again, they're both ritual in nature. They they have no saving grace in them. They are outward marks of what God has done to the heart. That was their intention. That's why God gave him, and, and, and I think many, even in the evangelical church, and particularly in, in some, some groups in the evangelical church, they very rarely talk about the, the real baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and more concerned with the water baptism. Again, should we be water baptized? Of course we should, but we should properly baptize people in water where they understand why that's happening, and they understand that it is, it is an outward evidence of what Christ has done on the inside. So he said, again, we are the circumcision who worship God how? In spirit. Remember Jesus' uh, uh, encounter with the Samaritan woman. And what does she say? So you Jews worship God down there in Jerusalem and we Samaritans worship God over here in our area. And, and, and Jesus' response was, I tell you the truth the time is coming when no longer will it be that you worship God there and we worship God there, but true worshipers, true worshipers of God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Again, mankind, religious-minded religious man, minded mankind always has to have a part in it. Okay, Biblical faith is what God has done for us and to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in it. So as Paul says in Ephesians, we have no right to boast about this. We have no right to claim our part in this. And when we speak of this, we, we speak at it from the, from the perspective that we understand that it's fully the grace of God that is poured out to us. So God gets all the glory for everything that happens to us. So he said "the the true circumcision are the ones who worship God in spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Okay. Have you realized yet that your flesh is weak? <laughs> have you realized yet that, that even if you endeavor to do better and even work hard to do better? And I always think about this when, it, when I talk about my thought life, I, it, that's part of my flesh. I can't tell you how many times I've determined not to think something. You know what that does for me. That's all I think about. You know. And so our flesh is weak. Okay. So why would we teach somebody just to transfer the responsibility of being right with God uh, from a religious perspective to our flesh? When our flesh cannot accomplish anything for us. It can't do anything for us. It is so easy to believe that the answer for life's issues and life's problems and, and the things we go through is somehow found within us. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that for basically that's what psychology teaches you. Psychology teaches us that, that man is innately good. And if we're going to find our way, we'll find our way by help and direction from the professional to help us find that source of truth and rightness within us. Do you understand how diametrically opposed that is to biblical Christianity? Which says, in me there is no good thing. We don't like that. But in my flesh, nothing can be accomplished except that which is contrary to God. So we we need to be very careful that that we don't even, when we talk about with each other, that we don't approach even ministering to each other from a worldly perspective, only trying to Christianize it by throwing in some Christian jargon. We need to understand that the only source of help we have is not what we can bubble up from inside us, but it is it is the eternal God who, yes, now lives inside us. But we understand He lives inside us not because He was always there with us, but because in His grace and His mercy He saved us and He It now resides in us. And we need to learn to trust Him. I want to tell Christians, learn to trust Him. Learn to go to Him. Learn to seek Him. He truly has those answers. The world doesn't have them. They might tell you they do, but they don't have those answers. Paul says, put no confidence in the flesh because your flesh will always let you down. Okay? Lost people have to put confidence in the flesh. And I'm I'm sure there is, from at least from a secular perspective, there is some good that's done. I'm not saying there's not good that's done for, for, for those people. But the ultimate good and the ultimate best for the children of God is not found anywhere in the world. It's found in Christ Jesus. We've got to start learning, believing that, and living that, and also sharing that with each other. Because there's a reason why the church exists, too, and that is to encourage each other and walk alongside and listen to each other you could be you know you have the Holy Spirit within you so you could be one of the greatest counselors the world has ever known if we would just listen and love and care and empathize so when we, when we look at this Paul said it is we who are believers in Christ Jesus that we are the true circumcision that would include not only the Jewish believers, but it would also include the Gentile believers who may have never been physically circumcised. He wants them to understand that that true circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Where God cuts away that old dead part of the heart and it he, he gives you something new. And that's what he's talking about there. So the next part of this passage is very interesting. If anybody had the right to teach the doctrines of the Judaizers. It was the Apostle Paul. If anyone had the right to claim, you see, it's interesting to me that the other twelve—and certainly they are not dumb men. You read the writings of John. You read the writings of Peter. They're not. They are not dumb men. Okay. But neither are they scholars by trade. <clears throat> Paul was educated in the finest of the Jewish schools. He had clearly some kind of lineage that allowed him to be to move into uh, positions of power and prestige within the Sanhedrin. He is clearly a scholar and there's really no getting around that. <clears throat> Maybe it's why that Many of the, uh, the eggheads of our day like to attack Paul more than anybody else to, to prove that they're, they're smarter than the Apostle Paul. But here's a man that had the pedigree. And if anybody in that day, at that time, could claim that their pedigree made them right with God, the Apostle Paul could do that. That's what he says right here. You want, you want to talk about what's in the flesh? If we're made right in the flesh, you want to talk about that? Well, let's talk about that. And I don't you know, I don't know the attitude in which Paul said this, but you know, I will just give him my attitude. I think he, he was trying to I think he becomes angry at these guys. I do. I I think he becomes angry and he becomes disgusted. You don't call people a group of dogs and, and mutilators and evil workers and say and say that with a grin on your face. He is disturbed at what these people are doing in the church. And it is bothersome to me that we have. We have ministers and leaders say that can't get disturbed with the garbage that's being taught in many of our churches. As if it doesn't matter. We're talking about people's eternity. It does matter. And so Paul, he's going to challenge these Judaizers. You wanna you wanna you wanna match pedigree for pedigree, degree for degree? You want to match works for works? You want to match piety for piety? Let's do it. And that's what he does. He says, he says here, uh if, if, if it was confidence in the flesh that made, me, made you right or made one right, then I more than anybody else should have confidence in the flesh. And let me tell you why. He says, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Which means that he was a part of an Orthodox Jewish faith and, and family from birth. That's what it means. Circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, He's of the stock of Israel. God's chosen people people that God chose to work through and speak through. So if if it's in the flesh or uh, because of an ethnic background, he would be right there also. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows his heritage. He knows where he's come from. You remember that uh, the first king of Israel was of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? A Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. A Pharisee, Paul was a Hebrew scholar. He was an author concerning the teachings of the law. He was an expert when it came to the law. He would have been clearly one of those guys who would, who would have known the law. He would have been able to quote the law to you. And by the way, as we talked about in our class today, not just merely the Ten Commandments or what we call the Ten Commandments, but the whole of the law Paul would have had. He could have told you in any area, in any aspect, what does the law say. And then I'm sure he would follow that up by telling you what he believed the law meant. And it would clearly have come from the perspective of a Pharisee at that time because that's where Paul was. So he says that. He He said, I was a Pharisee. Okay. In, I remind you, in the Old Testament, you never read about the Pharisees, do you? You don't read about the uh, Sadducees, and you don't read about the Sanhedrin. You don't even read, you don't even read about synagogues in the, in the Old Testament. These are things that came about during that inter, what we call interbiblical period. So the Old Testament closes out with the with the book of Malachi, and the oldest history books that we have there are, are Ezra and Nehemiah that come right up to, the, to that breaking point. Okay? and then all of a sudden it opens up some 400 years later and all things have changed. You have a Sanhedrin that's, that is a religious ruling party you have within the Sanhedrin the Pharisees and the Sadducees the Pharisees in, in that day would have probably been the more of the more of the uh, and again, depending on who you read, you might read this different, I would say they'd be more of the conservative group and the, uh, the Sadducees would be more of the liberal group of that, of that religious ruling party Budding body. Okay, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They actually didn't believe in the afterlife. Basically, believed that this is all that there was. Kind of interesting for a religious group, but hey, there's every kind of the sun out there. What's the point? Well, that's a good question. Uh, So, uh, Paul says he was a Pharisee. He was a member of San. There are many. Authors that speak of Paul that believe that, that Paul, when he was Saul, was on the fast track. What we would call, he was heading up the, the ladder in the Sanhedrin. Which is why he was sent out to do what he did. Okay. I remind you in the story of Stephen. I've heard it presented where, where Paul almost is like the, the hat check girl. He's holding their cloaks, you know. That's not what that means at all it means that he was the Pharisee on the scene in charge of what was taking place but stood far enough off so that he would not dare in any way possibly get any blood splattered on him or touch a dead body. But don't be mistaken, Paul, Saul, was in charge of what happened to Stephen that day. Can you imagine what it must have been like in heaven when Saul got there a few years later? When Brother Paul comes into heaven, there's Stephen. Well, we already know Stephen's attitude even when he was dying, remember? Much like Jesus', is, don't hold this against them. That's an incredible attitude when you're being stoned to death. So I think they had a good reunion, a great reunion when, 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 Paul got, when Paul got to heaven. But that's who he was. That's what he and he even said this. He said, Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. It was me. That was my job. That's what I, that's what I. Basically, almost, he talked about zeal. It's almost what he enjoyed doing. Why? Because he was a zealous man who believed that everything he was doing was for God. And even the persecution of church. When he talked about righteousness concerning the law, blameless. That's an interesting statement coming from Paul. But he's not talking about his view of it Now. He's talking about his, of his view of himself then. He was a teacher of the law. That's how he saw himself. And he was one who kept the law. And you, he was one of those guys who walked around in the, the, the robes and stuff that Jesus talked about. He was one of those guys who, who believed that they, that they had attained to the place where they were, they were righteous before God because they did not any longer break the law. They had convinced themselves that that was true. Talking about delusion, okay? Yeah, that they had created a system, particularly during those four hundred years, and established that system where a man—excuse me—where a man could consider himself to be right in that way, even though if he honestly had to look in a mirror and say that he'd never done anything wrong, he would have to say yes. But somehow the system made him right. And if you you notice, the the system for the Jewish people has even changed more. Because the sacrificial system was still going when Paul Paul was there. But now, even today, the Jewish people, the sacrificial system does not carry on anymore. So how are they made right? They convince themselves they are made right by keeping the law. By keeping the law. Say, wait a minute. Aren't they aware that they've all broken the law? I think they're all aware of that. But they wouldn't believe somehow that the righteous or the orthodox Jewish person has kept more of the law than the law that they have broken. And somehow this huge scale is up there in heaven that God uses and says, if you've done more good than you've done bad, you get to come in. they convince themselves that. The Jewish faith at the point we live in is mostly a faith on paper. Because they don't even do their rituals any longer. It's all on paper. When you talk about the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah, the young people that go there, it's, again, what's on paper? What do you know? What do you remember? What can you read? All of these things. You go there, and the ultra-Orthodox, they're they're sitting there reading. They have their little little prayer books, and they're sitting there reading, and they're they're bobbing their heads toward the wall and stuff like that. It's all on paper. So Paul says, says that he was... He was zealous and he was, and, and he was blameless according to, to, to the perspective of the time that he lived in. But now look at verse 7. Because verse 7 speaks of, the, of what God showed Paul. And that initial showing that God gave him was on that Damascus road. That's what he says. But what things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for Christ Jesus. I'm not sure we understand the extent of what it cost Paul or Saul to become Paul as we know him. I just told you all about him. You understand he lost all of that. All the power, all the prestige. He lost that fast track. There are some scholars that believe because he was a member of the Sanhedrin and he was a Pharisee that he was married. And there are some that say that again when he when he came to faith, his wife left him because he had left the Jewish faith. her views now no that's that's speculation and stuff, but my point is if it cost him everything to become the apostle of Jesus Christ, and even on that side of it, from a human perspective, he didn 't get a huge bargain, right? They beat him, they stoned him. <laughs> They hated him. They ridiculed him. Here again, we have the the Judaizers following around him saying, Paul's a false, he's a false apostle. He's not, he's not, he's teaching a false doctrine and stuff like this. Don't listen to to Paul. He does not even know what he's talking about. And he has no authority. He lost everything. This man who just walked into, into a place and was respected just because of who he was. All of a sudden had no respect given to him from anybody. And you don't have to read very much in the Old, excuse me, the New Testament to see that even at times the churches that he, God used him to establish turned against him. And they rejected it. They rejected his authority, rejected his word. And, but look at his attitude here. He said, but all the things that were gained, that, that I had gained, I consider them lost for Christ Jesus. I, I'm willing to give them all up just for Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered and all, uh, of all things. Uh, excuse me, I have suffered the loss of all things. That's I just told you that. And he goes on to say, this is interesting, his next word. He says, And count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now that is a heavenly perspective. Everything the world has to offer him, all that power, all that prestige, all, all the notoriety that he would have had as this great Jewish scholar, he says, you know what, all of it, compared to what I have received in Christ Jesus, it's garbage, it's garbage. I'm not sure we all have that perspective yet. Uh, I think, well let me just speak for myself, at time, I like to live in both worlds at times. I like to have what the world has to offer and I also like having Jesus. I wonder how I will do and how we will do when the day comes when, when we have we may have to lose it all for for Christ's sake. I hope he finds us faithful. I hope I hope we're responsive responsive to the Holy Spirit in that day. What if they took it all? What if that was a threat? What if they took your your kids, your family? What if they took, what if they came in here and said, you know what? We are seizing the property of all these, these uh, tax-exempt places because now we are saying they owe taxes, and so we're seizing the property. What if they do that? Will the church still be the church? Will we still meet? we still walk in Christ? These are, these are questions that, that are not uh, theoretical to the Apostle Paul. This was his life and the rest of his days on earth were filled not with glory, not with honor but filled with people who spoke against him, people who hated him people who wanted to kill him and eventually they did yet he says, everything that I had before when I compare it to who I am and what I have now in Christ Jesus I see all that stuff as garbage, as rubbish you you know what rubbish is? It's worthless it's worthless. That's an incredible place to come when he's talking about everything the world has told him in his day that would reveal that he was a successful person. Everything. We must ask the question, are we seeking the notoriety of the world and the prestige that comes with, with being a part of this world system? Or are can we understand or can we get to the place where we would see everything the world has to offer compared to what we have in Christ Jesus as rubbish? He's not saying and I'm not saying that we have to just cast everything aside. But we, I think we are saying that we need to be willing to cast that aside if that was the call that Christ had for us. I like verse ten, 11. We'll close with these thoughts. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It is later on in his letter to Timothy that Paul says there are this group of people that are coming around who have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof. They deny the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only to raise Jesus from the dead, but think about this, to raise us to new life. And one day, to raise us up in the same resurrection. And Paul says, he says, I, 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 I want to know the power of his resurrection and I'm willing to experience the, suff- the, the, the uh, fellowship of his sufferings and I'm also willing to be conformed to him in death to get to the place where you understand the world has nothing and a willingness to follow God wherever he would lead us even if that path that he would lead us down was the path that our brothers and sisters this week walked down and for the cause of Christ in Iraq were shot and killed but I I, I believe I believe there must have been a great homecoming in heaven, because these are the kind of people that would even go there, that had long ago made the decision, they're gonna follow Christ wherever He he goes. We need to understand that the safest place for us to be is wherever God's leading us. And whatever happens there, that's God's business. And the most dangerous place for us to be Is where Christ is not. And where the Holy Spirit is not leading. Even if we consider from a worldly perspective. The safest place to be. To know him. The power of his resurrection. To share the fellowship of his suffering. To be conformed to him. Even to the place of death. Because we understand. Hopefully we understand. That in him we have eternal life. And that is something that the world cannot possibly ever give us. The day's going to come we're all going to die. Well, except that the rapture happens. But we're going to put off this earthly flesh. And as I tried to share this morning there's eternity on the other side. There's eternity. And it's for right now that we make our decision whether our priorities in our life are based upon heavenly truth. Biblical truth godly truth but we'd rather be conformed and have what this world has to offer let's pray Lord I thank you for today thank you for our time together this morning and this evening I thank you for the way you love us I thank you for your inspiration to those that, that you assigned to write these books the apostle Paul who was not writing simply from a theoretical perspective but Lord but he lived this I'm grateful for that. And Lord, you proved yourself faithful to him all the way up until he drew his last breath here on earth. And Lord, we believe on the other side of that last breath, you have fulfilled every promise that you have for him and your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to be a people who respond to you the way that the apostle did. Help us have a proper perspective of what is valuable, what's important, and what what we need to give our life to. Lord, give us your heart. Give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit this week. Give us faith to follow you wherever you lead us. Praise us in your Son's name. Amen.